0: Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect.
1: Oh, it could be a trip on gossamer wings through high living and opulence. Or just another edition of Film Clip Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. Hello, I'm your host, Nikki Dakota, joined in the studio on your radio, right? The largest frame brain on the planet. He is the nitrate film archivist at the Library of Congress. Our man at the Library of Congress, George Willeman, welcome. Hello. Also, on your radio left, it is the storyboard artist for the Coen Brothers and all the beautiful people for many, many years making some of the finest movies we've come to love with our eyes. He's also our film guy, Jay Todd Anderson. Welcome. Hi.
0: Hiya, hiya, hiya. Funny thing happened on the way to the radio station today. I bumped into the largest frame brain on the planet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> And we thought, let's do some radio yeah let's do
0: some radio show we come together
1: here on this public radio station to celebrate the finest that the film world has to offer and what exactly is the uh what movie is it to to what movie is this grandiose theme we were just hearing? oh
2: my goodness this is one of the best of the best of the best this is the 1933 musical delight mm-hmm. musical confection <laughs> Gold Diggers of 1933.
1: Eight. So 33. is How mm-hmm. long ago? When we think about that perspective, and it actually um, still we can. It's way in,
2: beyond right. our and time. And also, when Wait. you think when you think about what was going on in the United States in 1933, and just how awful it was, and this being one of Warner Brothers' offerings to people to escape their humdrum, horrible lives, a
0: Musical about the depression. (laughs) Yeah, and we got to tell you, one of the leading factors in the selection by the committee uh, for this movie, for the perfect movie by, you know, Budinsky. Budinsky. Yeah, he's our boss. Budinsky is the fact that this is one of Busby Berkeley, the famous, you know, he directed all the musical scenes, not the whole movie. One of his most famous movies, because of what George just said,
1: a dancer and choreographer who mm-hmm. had, now, has done. Yeah,
0: for those of you who do not know who Busby Berkeley is, Busby Berkeley was a stylist that would take the camera and put it up on the top of the soundstage, and you would see these m- crazy designs of women with their legs moving, dancing, right. and dancing, Vans like and flowers, forming
2: and, big figures or, or giant faces of Ruby Keeler, or in nineteen
0: like sixties. Some of the variety shows like the Red Skelton Variety show would knock these movies off with the June Taylor dancer mm-hmm. or Tom Hansen dancers mm-hmm. and they would do try to do the same thing with overhead camera work. But as you will see, they shouldn't have tried this at home because Busby in this movie shows you how it is done. Well, and, and to go even farther,
2: if I may sure. um, if you look at some of the the big musical numbers that are done in in some of the newer Disney, Uh, animated features uh even as recent as princess and the frog there are these big numbers with you know characters making pyramids and doing sort of kaleidoscopic effects and again it all goes back to berkeley
1: this was his invention he really was the first to to do uh, this his imagination was
0: really running wild and Warner's, for some reason could it be the cash register we hear ringing um, <laughs> decided we should let him run wild and and that's exactly what they did and some of this stuff is so wild this imagery to this day it's just an absolute delight to watch it.
1: i want to remind us all of the rules in just a moment first tell me at what point in the arc of uh, of of busby berkeley's career is this that he started on broadway this is
0: um
2: i believe he did yeah and um this i mean he got into films very early uh, one of the first big ones that I know that he worked on was uh, the film Whoopi with Eddie Cantor, which was based on a stage show. So he may have come from the stage to do that. And when one.
1: what year is that? you have that off the top 1930, of your
2: head? That's nineteen thirty, I believe. Wow. Um, and he supposedly did the choreography for the uh, native dancing in King Kong, huh? and and then you know Warner's picked him up and uh, started using him. And when you know they, their earth-shaking uh, musical Forty Second Street and kind of from then on he had a job for quite some time.
0: Now some people they may wonder why we're not doing 42nd Street because that's you know that's the the typical movie you would think but more there's iconic something, there's something very special about this movie and it if you have a good way of looking back into the past and understanding what was going on this is the movie that you can kind of check out in 1933 because <laughs> of the temperament of what's or excuse me the temperature of the social uh, yeah. things that are happening right at the end after the depression day. and there was a scene there was a situation that happened in Washington DC where uh, General MacArthur's Ooh, don't give that away yet oh let's okay. talk about it let's get
1: let's remind everyone yeah. first that this is not something that you guys just yes. are feeling Calm down kind of friendly Calm down we'll get we'll get, and to, it. awesome. we'll get to it's them. that there are very steadfast and specific rules that each and every perfect movie must pass the test of. And gentlemen, what are those rules?
0: Well, Gold Diggers creates the world that it exists in. And it wholly sustains that wild. Regardless of changes in society, Gold Digger retains its meaning and entertainment
2: value. And Gold Digger is never placed in any kind of preferential or numerical order. It is perfect in its own
0: scale. I have to put the me- megaphone now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, so, George, it's, it's not just a bunch of amazing dance uh, episodes. There's an actual story kind of. A
2: right. There is a story that kind of holds the, well, kind of as a placeholder to to spread the musical numbers out into a you know full-length <laughs> motion picture. It's a
1: pacing mechanism for the musical right, numbers. Right, right.
2: <laughs> um, it's sort of a life support system for Busby <laughs> Berkeley's musical numbers. But it is, it is actually a very entertaining little story, and it's got the great, you know, sort of the stock Warner Brothers cast of players who were not only doing musicals but they were showing up in all sorts of the wonderful warner pre-code movies of this time um you've got uh, dick powell and uh joan Blondell, eileen mcmahon ginger rogers um, who, d-
1: who gets billing pretty far down right, she
2: hadn't really hit her fred at this point so you know it's a ways to go uh ned sparks as the theater empresario the ever popular Guy Kibbe and Warren Williams, who is one of our
0: favorite forgotten actors of the 30s. Just <laughs> excuse prepared. me, we're forgetting one of the most famous actors of all time in this movie. And who is that? Billy Barty.
2: Oh, oh! yes.
0: And Billy Barty as plays a baby. the baby. <laughs> he's, uh, he's a dwarf, he's a little person, and they dress him up because he's a young little person, yeah. and he plays this really weird, really baby. lecherous little baby. <laughs>
1: <laughs> in 1933, which is just before the Hayes just code. before the
2: Hayes Code slammed down and stopped making films fun in. Hollywood. And
1: maybe let's quickly remind of what that is. It was a self regulating. Self
2: regulating. Um, I mean, Hollywood was getting such a you know dumped on all the time for being salacious in and the films, corrupting being, our morals, corrupting our morals. That they created this Hayes Office. Called the Hayes Office because Will Hayes, the former postmaster, was given the uh, the running of it. And um, it basically, you know, took the guts out of filmmaking for uh, for a long, long time. But they
1: did; this, they agreed to censor themselves so censor that they themselves. wouldn't have censorship forced upon right. them. Is that basically yes, a fair statement? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, as we enter the story, what uh, what is what is the action? Well, the
2: basic story is that you know the the music you heard. You know, we're in the money. <laughs> it starts out right out with this beautiful, uh, big musical number of "We're in the Money." All the girls are dressed in these wonderful coin bikinis basically and they're dancing around these huge coins and they're singing we're in the money and and Ginger Rogers even sings it in pig Latin at one point <laughs> and then all of a sudden
0: the sheriff comes in and closes the show down because they haven't paid their bills That's this is the Busby Berkeley part in the beginning and they do these very famous things that he showed where they, they show a reveal of each girl so right.
2: you right.
1: could like remember your favorite gold, gold digger yeah. Yeah.
2: But So the show gets closed down. All the girls, we follow the girls who are in the chorus, and we see them in their apartment. They're all starving. You know, They're all out of work. All the theaters on Broadway have closed down. The depression is just it's destroying the business, and they find out that this Barney Hopkins, who was putting on this first show, has got another show going, and he comes, he tells them all about it, how great it is, but then he reveals that he has no money for it. So they meet the songwriter across the way, uh, played by Dick Powell, who offers to give them $15,000 dollars. So generous and and Barney who has come to visit the girls um, asks you know the songwriter his name is Brad Roberts asks him to play some things for him. So here's a little sound clip from the film where um, Roberts plays one of his what becomes one of the most important songs in the film.
3: Say have you got something with a kind of a march effect March rhythm to it? Yes, I have. I have something about a forgotten man but I don't have any words to it yet. Play it, play it. I tell you, I just got the idea for it last night. I was down on Times Square watching those men in the bread line. Standing there in the rain, waiting for coffee and donuts. Men out of a job, around the soup kitchen. Stop! Go on. That's it. That's what this show's about. The Depression. Men marching, marching in the rain. Donuts and collars. Men marching, marching. Jobs, jobs. And in the background, carols, spirits of the Depression. A blue song. No, not a blue song, but a wailing, a wailing. And this gorgeous woman, singing this song that'll tear their hearts out. The big parade, the big parade of tears.
2: Now, how would you like it if you were on Times Square selling apples and you got an extra dime, so you went in the Roxy to see this movie, <laughs> and there you were treated to... A film talking about what you've just been
0: doing outside. You
2: know? When it's
1: way cooler to watch coins dance in yeah. a geometric and then, pattern. when
0: you're watching this part, you have no idea how this movie is going to take a big turn in about two reels. And it it just kind of thumps on down the track as a standard movie in the 1930s, and they all get together, and they get their show together. And then, just like a nuclear explosion, it comes on to this big dance number right. again. But the, um,
2: the, the story, such as it is, inv- begins to involve... Well, they open the show, and the juvenile lead, who has been a juvenile lead for 18 years, uh, has <laughs> lumbago, so he can't go on. So they force <laughs> the songwriter, who also sings very well, Dick Powell, uh, t- to go in his place. And all the rich people in the audience recognize him. They've seen him somewhere before. He turns out to be the scion of this famous Boston banking um, family. And his brother, who's played by Warren Williams, and his, uh, the family solicitor are just horrified. And they confront him that he cannot be in this show. And he cannot be dallying with this showgirl. And Brad basically tells him in a nice 30s way to stuff it and leaves. <laughs> and then in this next little soundbite, Peabody, played by the ever-popular ever, ever popular guy Kibbe, talks a little bit about what showgirls are. I can't understand it.
3: It's the girl. I know these showgirls. They're just little parasites, little gold diggers. I don't doubt it. I remember in my early youth, I trod the primrose path on the Great White Way. There I learned the bitter truth that all women of the theater were chiselers, parasites, or as we call them, gold diggers. I remember, well, one experience I had with a woman of the theater. It was the day of the big Harvard game. We all came down, a stout company of young blades, eager to learn about life. I met this girl at the stage door of the old casino. We went to Rector's for a bite. I had a cold bird in a bottle. She nibbled at a steak. Her name was Eunice. She called me Fuffy. I don't know why she did, but she called me Fuffy. I'm going to see her. Oh, I don't know where she is now. That was 30 years ago. Oh, no, I mean this Polly Parker woman. Oh, I wouldn't go if I were you. You're only putting yourself into their hands. I tell you, they're all blackmailers,
1: gold diggers, parasites. By the way, the definition of gold digger is a person who dates others purely to extract money from them.
0: And they're to, not dentists
2: either, particularly
1: right. a woman trying to marry, marry a rich, rich man. man for his Which money. Which is what
2: the rest of the story becomes, where Warren Williams actually ends up thinking the wrong, meeting the wrong girl. And she decides to take him for a ride and just to treat, teach him a lesson. And, you know, <clears throat> lots of lots of wacky things happen. It's all worked out in the end, of course. <laughs> and <laughs> then we get to the big part the Busby Berkeley
1: part of the show. We're and talking this... about Goldingers of 1933, a Warner Brothers film in black and white that uh, was uh, pre haze and uh, just a lot of glitz and pomp.
0: Now, when you watch this nowadays, you're not going to really appreciate it because everything is done, what we call special effects nowadays, which is a digital element where we use green screens and stuff like that. But you watch it. This is 1933 and they're on a crane and they are moving seamlessly through a lot of people on that stage and they are like in really dangerous positions they're standing on top of each other standing on. Thing, yeah it's yeah. just Lighting unbelievable platforms. and they're not only doing this but they're doing this to cadence and rhythm and music <laughs> and then this final scene comes up and it's just absolutely astonishing because i whenever i watch this movie this is what i think about i think it's 1933 and it's not a pleasant deal and you are outside in, like, really bad heat or whatever the temperature is. And you walk into a theater. And here's this beautiful movie palace. air conditioning on. You sit down in this big stuffed chair. Mm. And for the next three hours, you get 20 feet high pictures <laughs> of women stacked on, stacked on, stacked on. It's just unbelievable. And the climate outside is completely forgotten. And then as George and I were talking— you probably got out of your chair and walked outside back into the real world. This Busby Berkeley stuff was what Escape was made out of. And this is, I can just hear the studio heads, Jack Warner. And everybody's starving to death, so uh, let's give them what they want. You know, happiness and pleasantries and uh, yes, yeah, Escape. Stack some girls up. Send them out.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> and most of girls. the
0: musical numbers in it are very
2: escapist. I mean, the first big one is petting in the park Oh my goodness Ooh, you guys know of, some of the lyrics to that song uh,
0: naughty <laughs> naughty sexually
2: you charged imagine. song can imagine petting in, in the park and yeah, there's petting this in
0: the horny little baby running around <laughs> and it was just it's kind of borderline creepy and he's creepy. looking up girls skirts and right. it's so, so and he's, a decadent, he's making gestures yeah. to the camera well, like, and then
2: it starts raining and this is the great thing about Buzzy Berkeley for those of you who are not familiar with his work the show the, the numbers always start within the confines of the proscenium arch and then they begin to fold out and fold up and fold out and fold up until they're so big that there's no way they could be inside a theater. And then it starts to rain, okay, or something. <laughs> so in Peton in the Park, it starts to rain. The girls get all wet. So they go into this suddenly their two-story uh, changing room, pull the curtains down, yes. and strip. And you see them strip in and shadow. And the
0: baby is like
2: watching. And Jackpot. then the baby comes. The baby comes over, and he pulls the screens up. And when he pulls the screens, <laughs> look—they look. are now. They come back to the guys. They are now wearing metal bathing suits that the guys cannot get into. And then at the end, Dick Powell, who's squeezing Ruby Keeler, cannot. You know, all he gives is this is crunky, crunky, crunk, like a can <laughs> sound. Billy Barty comes up, taps him on the
0: shoulder, hands him a can opener. I can't. Avoid. And, and Dick all the Powell time, starts they... cutting. The song ends with him cutting away the back of her. And they're sculpture. smiling and bouncing at the same time. Where, yeah. where, 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 where <laughs> very bizarre, even to this day. There's nothing like it. It's just absolutely phenomenal. So that,
2: uh, so that one, that was kind of the funny, sexy one. The next one is is Busy Berkeley getting to do his big thing with all the special effects called the Shadow Waltz. Beautiful. And in this one, this one, the girls have these beautiful swirling corkscrew costumes, and there's this wonderful set of all sorts of different pathways. And then the lights go out, and they're playing violins, and the violins light up because they're all uh, outlined in neon.
1: And the bows, too. And the bows,
2: too.
0: You can see the chords in you can there see the you chords, look carefully. Yeah. But, you know, by this time, the audience didn't care, man. They were outside of the play that they were watching, and they were in this world that Warner Brothers created for right. them.
1: And it is notable that this was not special effects beyond just rigging some violins no, This with is gravity, neon. man. There, this I is mean, the real, yeah. you're looking at it.
2: And there are some opticals. There's the optical effects here. And sure. There. You know, wipes and dissolves and whatnot. It, but for the
0: most part, no, it's all done practically. Nothing sophisticated. Yeah. Nothing at all. It was all in Busby Berkeley's head. And the only thing, like I said, was fighting him was gravity. That was it. Because if he could have made them float, I'm sure we would have seen something, which is really odd. When you read about Busby Berkeley, he was really had an unhappy life. He was married quite a few times, and he um, was involved in a horrible car accident. Yeah, he oh. just, he'd had a rough time of it. He lived, you know, kind of long. But when you watch these things, you never dream that this guy was tormented because this obviously is his artistry. This is what he's painting for everybody, and it's gonna it's going to live forever because I don't think anybody could really seriously challenge his imagination as much as their humor to think they are. Right. Watch this stuff. And especially when we go to the dark end of the street, which is the end of the movie. And this is where we get to the whole, the bread and butter of this movie is the final number, which
2: is called the forgotten man. And in this one, and this, you know, just this time watching it, I'm amazed to think of a major Hollywood studio doing such a politically charged piece in what is basically an entertainment film that, you know, that touches on one of the real hot-button issues of this era, a thing called the Bonus Army,
1: ah, um, which
2: which you were going to talk about earlier. So go ahead and tell the folks about the Bonus Army.
0: Well, it's just in a period in our—this is not our glorious history, but um, uh, General MacArthur, these soldiers had come—were wanting their their pay— it's on. basically look a it bonus of.
1: after fighting yeah. World War One. Yeah, and right. then Come they home. all camped out, and camped they all water,
0: they all yeah. camped out. Uh, I think it was in where was it? Do you know where they camped out? Of his they all had tents, but, and it was
1: it like was a tent in city. Washington, it was Washington D.C. Right? I don't know if it was on the,
0: on the Mall or
2: in mall front of the White yeah. House.
1: MacArthur
0: or, came in with his cavalry and just like really, really roughed them up and moved them out. It was sure. not a nice thing. This is the MacArthur that like. Brought us to you know, the Pacific. He the considered to be
1: a disgrace to the president that that it was very uh, 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 was a very mark in, of dishonor the yet, uh, to the but president. Is, was his thinking behind that? This was I the read. last thing
0: they expected is some guy like Busby Berkeley showing them, you know what what right.
1: happened yeah look
2: what uh, you look what you've done to your your fathers and sons and brothers you know and they they were there for you and now they're abandoned
0: and that, that is such strange? a you know if you don't know about this I don't know a lot of details I've read about it a couple times and I've seen it on television but then when I saw this I, I looked it up this really is going to st- in people's minds because it's, it's so effective, the Forgotten Soldier. And the way he does these single file lines where he moves the camera up and down their faces and you can see their forlorn faces and then, then they're marching over these beautiful arches that are lit up and yeah. my print that I had was just an absolutely spectacular looking print. It was so cool.
1: Well, the thing's clean.
2: really
0: cool. Um, it's
2: at, hard at, to
1: get. Is it not? We're, we're... No, it's, no actually, okay. it's
2: actually still fairly easy to yeah. get. Um, at the Library of Congress, we have the Warner Brothers negatives. And we have the negative. The negative, the original negative to gold of 33 still exists. We still oh, have it, wow. the nitrate negative. So that's kind of what they're going from when they're doing the DVDs.
1: You're listening to Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYS. So we're speaking of the perfect movie Gold Diggers of 1933, a Warner Brothers, Warner brothers release uh, in black and white, obviously. And uh,
0: Horny Brothers. I said
1: Warny, <laughs> But you know what's really funny because there's so many, think about it, so many things juxtaposed here. There's so many sort of like things overlaid. There's the the opulence of the dancing coins. There's the, creepy little I gotta tell you, sassy when I, Randy baby.
0: When, when I talked to George, I said, we got to do something by Busby Berkeley. And you know, the first thing that everybody thinks about it, like I said, is 42nd Street. But then I watched this thing and it stuck with me for days because that forgotten soldier thing this thing and
1: that, takes yeah. so
0: many crazy turns. You know, you have this incredible opening and then what you're talking about with the that uh, the number with the violins right and the, the shadow wolf. And then we do what everybody expects, a nineteen thirties movie about this little juxtaposition with people and their problems, and then all of a sudden, bam. Yeah, right they, in the face. Here it is, it's, it's just so out of the blue, and that's the way the picture ends.
1: I became interested and did a little sort of a reading, and there wasn't, the first version of 1929, which is lost, except for a few little right, stretches the last of film. reel
2: exists in a couple, a couple of scenes.
1: Yeah, and, um, but it, I think it's notable to talk about the music here. I learned that it was, uh, and the tiptoe through the tulips was from... It was originally written for the 1929 right. Gold Diggers, which is a tune we still sing today. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, in the 35 version, was Lullaby of Broadway, and uh, I'm in the Money was original to this film. Mm-hmm. And let, let's talk about those. those right. Ones. Well,
2: yeah. And these two guys, uh, Harry Warren and Al Dubin, were sort of like the the songsmiths at Warner Brothers, and they did. They, I don't think they did. They didn't do Tipsy Through the Tulips, but the they one. did all the songs for this film. In fact, there's an in joke. In this film, when uh, Ned Sparks' character, Barney Hopkins, hires uh, Brad Roberts to do his show, he's got, I've got a contract with Warren and Dubin, but they're out. You're in. You're doing all my songs, you know. So, and, there, and several times in these Busby Berkeley films, he he mentions the names of Warren and Dubin uh, throughout. So, obviously, there was a pretty good working relationship there.
1: Clearly but yeah
2: the the songs are really good, they're very humble, they really get stuck in your head,
1: yep,
0: and um,
2: they passed
1: the pop test for sure, yeah, yeah uh-huh.
0: one thing's really uh-huh. one thing you can pretty much count on when you watch this uh about these girls you know that are in this course line. they may look obsolete and they got different hairstyles, and they're all kind of chummy, but one thing that this this show kind of tells you is how hard those girls had to work back then to keep their jobs, much less in the depression. Here they are right. they're trying to you know, stay on Broadway. And, and to this day, I know I have p- friends who are actors and it's, it's hard enough to stay on one show to another to keep living. Uh, and you can see kind of that in this movie where these girls have to work really hard to stay in their in their roles and, and dance and everything. And it's that's gonna... the working aspect of this movie. Well,
2: it even turns out at one point, the character played by uh, Ginger Rogers, Faye Fortune,
3: Faye Fortune. Uh, who comes
2: in to tell them that Barney's doing a new show, she's wearing this really nice outfit and they take it from her so that someone else can go and talk to Barney, and she's like, uh. and she's like, well, that's that's my my outfit. I, I work at the I think it's a drugstore, you know. In this outfit, and I'm like, that's the kind of outfit. You work at a drugstore. And it's probably <laughs> a hostess at like a coffee shop in the drugstore. But yeah, so she's working another job. So in they have something to... coming in. Well, they're not working otherwise. She's the only one who's working.
1: And it's funny that. To me, Lisa, my, my conception of the modern interpretation of the word gold digger is very negative, but you don't get that in, in this.
0: I think it was a series, wasn't it?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, the the... There's a bit of a negative connotation, but it's done by Fuffy,
1: Fuffer. you know,
2: and and the the, the sort of the, the the fusty old guys who were, you know, oh, these are gold diggers, and of course the girls are not gold diggers in this one. Right. There are some Warner Brothers films where they're gold, yeah, yeah. yeah, but in this one they're just you know they're down in their luck, but they decide to take the guys for a ride, you know, and, <laughs> yeah, not and to be, teach, them close, a teach them a lesson, not to be yeah.
0: confused with Dean Martin's gold diggers, you know, in <laughs> <from> the sixties.
1: <'60s. laughs> This is Filmically Perfect on ninety one three WYSO, and it is the Gold Diggers of nineteen thirty three, a black and white movie uh, from the Warner Brothers studio that has uh, stood up. It just, if for nothing else, the beauty of the dance. Because I, the story in itself is somewhat of a, a well worn one. The notion of uh, you know putting on the show and and uh, trying to get by with uh, every scrap that you yeah, can.
2: Yeah, the yeah the the depression angle is the new thing in this one. And I, they really didn't do it again. I mean, you know, going on from there, the 35 and 37 and some of the other ones are, are not of this sort of uh, down-on-your-luck kind of ilk. But, most but movies. to add to the, I mean, as we say, you know, the film guys have chosen this film, but also this film was chosen for the National Film Registry some years ago. That's right. And I think it is the one, Buzzy Berkeley, that's on the National Film Registry. So it is noted by the United States government as a true... Treasure.
0: And it's one of the only films and I, I you know, I take a risk by saying that, that directly addresses the social situations of that very moment. Yeah. Well I would say it's it's because Warner Brothers was doing a lot of
2: those. I mean, they're doing Not a lot like of social drama. This. But this is the only musical I can think of right offhand, at least the only one I've ever seen that addresses these these social. And
0: drama. how much did it cost to make this movie? $433,000. That's a lot of bucks Huge in 1933. For the time. In to, 1933 address the, when, to address the depression with these crazy numbers. You know,
2: and I think that, you know, my grandfather was making like 50, 75 cents an hour in his job, which luckily he was able to keep.
1: Wow. Impression.
0: This was a franchise film for that studio, and this is when these studios were kicking out 60 and 70 films a year, hmm. not including cartoons right, and, and things like that, and shorts. <laughs> but for them to make this gamble, now I have read quite a few things that, you know, that Jack Warner was pals with FDR, and I just think it always amounts down to one thing that, you know, there's no substitute for good old-fashioned talent, and that's who they had. They had Busby Berkeley, who is – Pretty darned amazing. Well, and we should also—I hate leaving him out because he was really good too. The the actual
2: credited director of this film is Mervyn Leroy, and if you look up his credits, he was no slouch either. And he does a great job, uh, you know, directing the company in the other story, the actual story of the film. Keeps it moving, keeps it lively, draws great performances out of everybody. And and he actually, if you look at the his resume, you'll see that he did a lot of these Warner uh, pre code films.
0: He did. He does. But here is what I am saying. They're gonna say the Busby Berkeley style, not the Mervyn Leroy style. Yes. You know, <laughs> oh, you know the Mervyn Leroy yeah. style. No, not th- it's the Busby Berkeley style.
1: It's another edition of Filmically Perfect coming to a close on 91.3 WYSO. We have been talking about the Perky Perfect Perky, the Perky Perfect film, Gold Diggers of nineteen thirty-three, and uh, Ginger Rogers among the uh, cast of characters, and just great all the way around. <laughs> Well, gentlemen, when we look back at the rules for this amazing offering, I would say that rule number one creates it. It so creates it. There's, there's, I don't even. Yeah, I
2: mean, (laughs) yeah, I do too. There's the, you know, the story that takes place in real life, but there are the fantasy elements. It's all there. And it's
1: here, 80 there. years later, rule number two, we're still talking about it and still entertains, yeah, still, still engages. Uh,
0: you know, changes in society, it still has some really interesting direct meaning with what's going on today.
1: Yes. I mean. yeah, and
2: once uh, once the bread lines start forming in 2013, <laughs> it'll be just like that all <laughs> over
1: again. We'll all be dancing <laughs> with huge golden coins. And we didn't decide that this is numerically
0: better than 42nd Street. We just liked it better. It That's has right. a better...
1: 33, it's a great number. That's right. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. J. Don Anderson, storyboard artist for uh, the Coen brothers and all the beautiful people. It's always a pleasure.
0: Yeah, I guess you're saying the Coen brothers are beautiful people. Is that what you're saying? I have to tell them that. Right,
1: I guess I did say that. George Willeman, the nitrate film archivist for the Library of Congress and the largest frame brain. It's always a pleasure to sit with you and,
2: and you can just call me Fuffy. <laughs> I don't know why you can call me Fuffy.
1: I think I might start doing that. Thanks so much. You can write to the Film Guys, the Film Guys, or no, Film Guys at PerfectMovie.net. That's FilmGuys at PerfectMovie.net. You can catch archived editions of our audio at iTunes at NPR.org at WYSO.org or go to the source, PerfectMovie.net. Gentlemen, and Facebook. And Facebook. Thanks for being here. See you next
0: time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you
3: Please?